What up? Welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris, and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. Today we're talking a movie from 2022. Maybe the saddest movie of the decade, The Whale. I don't know about the saddest movie of the decade. Charlie is pretty... I mean, he's all about positivity. I'm not going to say he's happy, but certainly his his M.O. is positivity across the board. Yep. I saw an interview with Brendan Fraser. Oh, man. He said, the whale is about hard-won hope, which just, like, made me so sad. Not to say that Brendan Fraser is Charlie or the whale, but how can you not love Brendan Fraser. Like, I guarantee you, I didn't see the interview, and I'm sure there are lots of them based on, you know, because the whale is getting so much attention. He definitely cried in your interview, right? He got emotional for sure, and then apologized profusely to his co, <laughs> his cast. Did you see the Venice Film Festival eight minute, six minute, however long it was, standing ovation for the whale? No. And he gets up and he wasn't prepared for this and his like pants are wrinkled and his shirt is like slightly untucked and he looks really uncomfortable and people are just applauding. And Venice is the place where it's like eight minutes or six minutes. And he said, depending on who's holding the stopwatch, because you can't constantly applaud for six minutes. That's absurd. Like six <laughs> minutes straight. But he's standing there and like people are clapping like crazy and he's like ready to go and get a drink or something. And Darren Aronofsky is like, nope, you got to stand here and take the clapping. So he's all emotional and he's just, he's crying all over the place. And it's like the most well-deserved <laughs> comeback I've ever seen. He's so lovable. Wow. And I even, I would dare say lovable even as Charlie and like cuddly in a sweaty whale kind of way. Like, did you get that? Like his big earnest eyes and just like his hope and I, and I love you and all that stuff. It's just raw love and affection for his totally deplorable daughter. Yeah. I mean, teenagers are horrible people. I can tell that you are resistant to being judgy in this epi in this review. <laughs> well, of Charlie in particular. I don't know logistically how a body of that size would necessarily work if that's how it would flow and move and how the weight would be distributed or whatever. But just the prosthetics around his face uh, were pretty seamless. 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 So impressive. So I was they were so realistic that I was genuinely concerned for Brendan Fraser's health. <laughs> I was like, whoa, what happened to Brendan Fraser? Right. I think that's his hair, though. He's losing hair in the, some of the interviews I've seen. It's pretty sparse. Yeah, they did some optical illusion movie magic type tricks. Like, I'm pretty sure that some of those props were maybe two-thirds scale. He definitely had Hellboy hands. They were big old meaty hands. I mean, he was huge. And obviously the, the way that they framed him up, the way that his co-actors, the way that they staged the other actors' eyelines, you know, they're looking down at him or they're looking way up at him. And they're positioned such in the frame that they just look so diminutive in, in comparison. But I'm pretty sure that there were some fisheye lenses and scaled props and scaled set dressing to just emphasize Charlie's massive size. Lord of the Rings style. So he's like a gigantic Gandalf. Yeah. Am yes. Amongst hobbits. Uh, number one, it was shot in digital, and I think that really tracked because digital is almost comparable to film now, and it's a bit more widespread, but when digital filmmaking first emerged, it was a little bit pixely, and you can kind of tell it had a different vibe. It was particularly useful for low light, but it didn't look very clean. It looked kind of messy, and they definitely colored it in this weird sickly tone that hurt my eyes. Like, it was mm. meant to be dank and in the depths of his despair, right? 
Yeah, I could see that. The coloring was so it was all drab. And then in addition to that, you have all of the rain effects outside, very dark. And when he, especially when he's like dying, dying, everything feels grayed out. It just got darker. Yeah. There was a grayish tinge. It was a little bit like the Matrix was kind of greenish if Neo didn't actually go anywhere, if he never left the Matrix and then just ate a bunch. (laughs) This would become Neo? Maybe that's just right. Maybe that's just how Idaho is, man. Sorry, all our listeners in Idaho, but man. I'm really not sure what the filmmakers were trying to say about Idaho, if anything. I mean, other than that, it's a place where real people live with real problems. And where a real dude with a real problem can totally disappear and no one would check on him except the pizza dude. Except Dan from, oh my gosh, he says the name six times. What's it called? Bambinos? I don't know. Dan the Unseen Pizza Man until we saw him. Gambolis? Until we saw him. You knew that was going to happen, right? I guess. But it it never didn't feel like the stage play that it was based upon. I I imagined that we were going to spend a lot of time in his apartment, but it definitely felt staged and maybe blocked like like a production of that sort, where you see people walking by the windows and then you hear the knock at the door and they only come inside. There was that one scene outside where the two ladies are having their discussion, their earnest discussion, where somehow... Uh, Brandon Fraser goes all all like ninja and sneaks up on them and like how could a dude that big you know move that quietly and open the door to where he interrupts their conversation (laughs) ninja style it wasn't the two ladies it was um, Liz and Thomas oh right they were having their heart to heart and yes he's then suddenly he's at the door and he's like Liz he's like Thomas is sitting like right there but we've had a number of discussions on movies that are based on plays one Night in Miami, Mom Rainey's Black Bottom. But The Whale has the best story motivation, I think. Really? Yeah, to justify this kind of claustrophobic, you know, one main set kind of storytelling. Because, I mean, in essence, Charlie is a shut-in and for all intents immobile. It's weird because it feels like we get some real mobility when he gets in that little wheelchair. Yeah, and he's like scooting around. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, hey, we're moving. <laughs> it's a fat guy wheelchair. Yeah, it was pretty wide. Man, Liz, the truth spitter. Yeah. Is, but maybe not any more than Sadie Sink is Ellie. Like, I were you not waiting for Liz and Ellie to throw down? Yeah, to really get, like, to start scratching each other and stuff? <laughs> I mean, when you get an unstoppable force and an immovable object, what happens? I was like, I couldn't wait right? until those two went at it, and they never did. They're climbing the furniture and climbing Charlie or whatever and leaping at each other. <laughs> Um, she, I wrote down, what is wrong with Liz? Is she just loud? Um, I didn't know what her, of course we find out what her problem is and why she's so fiercely protective of Charlie. I thought she was just like the nurse who is also really mean. It's kind of like a nurse who also smokes. It's just, it doesn't track. Then you understand what her motivations are. But I was like, why doesn't she want the kid around? She's like, what the hell is a kid doing here? Right. Is she just mean? And then we get her story. Ugh. I mean, her story is incredibly tragic, but also she is in, Liz is in an impossible, impossible situation. She might be the wayward caregiver who smokes and even physically abuses her patient, but also she is in this horrible position of of both caring for him, but part of caring for him is enabling him. Yeah. Like she brings him the bucket of chicken. She brings him the double foot long meatball subs with extra cheese. Yep. And he doesn't even, their relationship is such that he doesn't even even need to ask. 
Like, she just knows what her duties are. Did you also notice that Charlie rarely finishes a sentence? Uh, no, I didn't notice that he doesn't finish a sentence. But as Fat Guy Logic goes, um, they had Charlie at one point fall asleep before he finished his sandwich. And I was like, that's not realistic for fat guys. I mean, ultra obese, like immobile fat guys. I'm saying that's your focus is the sandwich. And you can sleep later. But he was drugged. Yeah, that's true. I mean, look, he like got down with his pizza and his chicken. He double sliced it, man. That That's when you know you mean business. Double sliced and then New York folded it. Right. <laughs> like lengthwise folded it. And that and, and I was like, that looks delicious. And then I couldn't help it. Like I couldn't make it through the movie because I had started it already hungry. And I was like, I'm oh, sorry. No. I know this is a fat guy movie, but I, I, I need to eat. And so I like made a sandwich and I was like quietly eating the sandwich. While Kelly Ray's watching and like tears are flowing down her face. Oh, <laughs> I did have pizza just at the start of this movie. And I was like, you know, I finished it really early in. But I was like, man, I want another slice. Yep. But like it's the holidays and I've been eating so much. Food. Oh, Double folding, you can do that? Double stacking and <laughs> fold? Gotta try it. I mean, these are deep dish like mega pizza pieces chicago style you can't fold that you can't fold that but i can you know i can polish off half a domino's pizza easy but like a deep dish chicago style i kind of tap out at two pieces but i was like i'm I'm hungry and i but then i resisted and then afterward i had all these conflicting feelings about it (laughs) yeah but when he bites into the sub not the double meatball extra cheese but like the first sub i was like damn that's a really big bite yeah and then he chokes on it and i was <laughs> oh my god that was the worst and i felt and that was probably one of the moments where i felt most deeply for liz i mean of course i felt i feel horrible for charlie but for liz to just like it was the first moment where she loosens up she's like talking about her day and the violent purple puke she had to puke you know pick up and i was just beginning to understand that maybe their friendship is two-way and then he chokes and he and she has to save his life and then she gets so pissed yeah appropriately as only friends can do like if it was a stranger you can't be like you asshole you ruined my lunch by making me hammer you on the back to save your life (laughs) like but if it's your friend or whatever then you save their life and then beat them up Especially if you're a little lady. And then, of course, he goes into his whole sorry routine, which just makes it all worse. Oh, well, for the emotionality of it. I mean, there are there's inherently funny stuff that would read as disgusting to some people. Uh, I felt the food stuff very keenly. And then when you see that little Asian lady jumping on him and like trying to get him to stop from choking, it was funny, but also very obviously very sad. But it was like. I don't know. It was like a funny, it's a ridiculous scenario. But I do think that they, you know, we joked or whatever, but the movie treats Charlie very seriously, like a person. You can feel his emotions uh, before you see the reactions of other people. Mostly what we got were pauses. And then from Samantha Morton, Charlie, what the hell did you do to yourself? Is about as, no, that's not true. Sadie sings like, why the hell are you so fat, goddammit, or something, what she says. But mostly it's him bracing himself or steeling himself against the perceptions of other people and Mm. in that way he's apologetic for everything about his being but i i never felt that he didn't get all like he didn't play a fat guy like jim carrey would you know what i mean uh Patton oswald he had the like your b fat have you heard that b fat 
He's like the guy, he talked about a fat guy and he said the guy was so fat, he was like B fat. And B is when you can hear all the B's. Like it's a fat guy by the way they say B. Like, yeah, as I bought my bracelet at Fiddle and Burks and, you know. <laughs> and, and oh, I haven't heard of this. And Brandon Fraser didn't play it like that. He was thoroughly human. Uh, erudite and very clever, well, uh, self-aware, painfully self-aware. So it's not like he... He, he didn't attempt to justify his position. He was apologetic for it because he knew that what he did to himself wasn't healthy, obviously, for anyone involved. Like, he, it was just, he was positive for everyone else, but you could feel the masked layers of self, self-loathing and guilt. In a, in a very respectful way, and punk-ass Brendan Fraser talks endlessly about the disease of obesity and how he went, wants to bring awareness and humanity to it. Says that Charlie is the most heroic man he's ever played in his long career, which includes George of the Jungle, for God's sake. And uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's interesting because he's very in tune with how this performance would be perceived and how a person like Charlie would be perceived. And just when you think they're going to sugarcoat it, we get Sadie Sink and her brutal honesty. Oof. Who, without hesitancy, says that her dad is disgusting. Yep. Which may be just the limitation of her teenage vocabulary. <laughs> um, it's just a step up from Grody. Maybe. Although she's very clever and quite a good writer, at least according to her dad. In, in addition to being a good writer, maybe because of her dad or whatever... Is she also as calculating, manipulative, and downright evil as her mom suggests? Or is she just a punk-ass teenager and that's her mom projecting her kind of bitterness on her? I mean, she's definitely a punk-ass teenager. There's no question about that. And I think her evilness is the other side of the coin of her honesty, which is all that Charlie sees. Is it true? Was she trying to crush Thomas or was she in some chess-level strategy also trying to to liberate him. I mean, I don't think that she's outcome-oriented. She doesn't seem to think that far ahead. I think that her primary, if not her only objective, was to out him for the hypocrite that he was and somehow get at a truth that people can accept or reject or interpret as they will. And that's what Charlie values, is honesty. Honesty in writing, honesty in, in your personhood. Give me something real. And it's crazy that something written... Out of the blue, fabricated from sheer imagination, would strike us as being so honest and forthright. It's just an approach to these themes, which you could see would be could be a pretty straightforward approach from other people. And he could be a monster. Like, I was very concerned. I was like, really? The fat guy movie? They're calling it The Whale? And thankfully, <laughs> thematically, it tied in a little bit more closely. But The Whale mm -hmm. seemed kind of mean. And so I was bracing for what this movie was going to be. Well, so it's definitely in reference to Moby Dick and the whale. What's the whale's name? The whale was Moby Dick. Okay. So obviously we have Moby Dick. And then obviously there was all the beach symbolism. Oh, yeah, yeah. For him in his the flashbacks or whatever. And I wondered why they didn't show Brandon Fraser as he is. Like, he's an overweight dude right now. It's just, you know, you haven't seen him in years or whatever. But I wonder mm -hmm. if they had shown Brandon Fraser being an overweight dude, but not charlie level overweight so you can see like the seeds of the person he became you right. know back in the day would that have taken away from the power of charlie as the character only as we know him like we only saw like a brief glimpse from behind no i think that would have elevated the film i was very invested in the present day charlie and so if we had seen past charlie and it was just brendan frazier i think it would have 
brought a lot of, I don't know, veracity and validity to it. I, I mean, I just wanted to see Brendan Fraser because afterward, I was very curious to know how Brendan Fraser was doing health-wise. <laughs> Thankfully, mostly just good makeup. So there was the beach stuff, and then there was, so Charlie was the whale or a whale or whale-sized? Yeah. I mean, obviously, it was how people perceived him. Did you note that the kids, when he turned on his camera, ultimately, a couple of them pulled out their phones? I saw that. Man. That was rough. A lot. Some of them gaped. Some yeah. of them pulled out their phones. Some of them, like, leaned in to, like, examine him closer. Yeah. Oof. He, he was completely off the radar. His kid hadn't seen him. His wife hadn't seen him. Liz was really the only person until Thomas stumbles into his life. And... I didn't care about Thomas's monologue. I, I didn't really care about his story. I get that, in a way, Charlie helped him or or, or uh, Sadie Sink helped him to get to a different place in his life. But he wasn't the focus. He seemed like a secondary or third character to focus on. But do you think that, cause, you know, mainly because he was a door-to-door -door religious man or whatever we're calling them these days. Do you think that Charlie was tolerating the Thomas character so he could kind of have a friend in a way he was shocked when dan the invisible pizza man was like hey so how you doing you know like <sighs> there was a curiosity he didn't know who the dude was inside and thomas mm -hmm. didn't know but why he he wanted nothing to do with thomas's spiel and then thomas came back for his own motivations but why do you think that charlie kept letting him come back i mean thomas gets roped in by charlie's immediate health crisis and then Charlie asks him to stay for, for practical purposes. And then Ellie and Liz take turns just kind of groping him in and, and, and cornering him. So it seemed like Charlie, for like the first three or four visits, I don't remember how many there were, he was just kind of tolerating Thomas having being around. And Thomas was already introduced to Charlie's condition. And so there wasn't that kind of embarrassment that he needed to shield himself from. But ultimately, it seemed like when Charlie and Thomas finally have time together, he wants to know, am I disgusting? He wants to know maybe um, if he can understand something more about Alan through Thomas's parallel experience with new life. But he certainly doesn't need to know or want to know anything about God or the gospel that Thomas wants to share. I think that Charlie's lifestyle didn't allow for him to suddenly embrace religion from a dude that knocks on his door. Right. And by lifestyle, I mean watching TV and thinking about it. <laughs> the themes of this movie were interesting, and it kind of helped it to breach the confines of Charlie's apartment and made it feel deeper, I guess, given it what was still a very limited cast. Uh, symbolism was present as well. Did you note the harbinger of death in the bird landing on the window? Oh, yeah. A la the farewell or white tiger mm -hmm, the crow that he that he was feeding yeah and he was feeding it and in a way he was like lure trying to lure the bird and i was like there it's charlie courting death you know like he's kind of staring it in the face and unflinching and he knows he's gonna die it's not like oh how long do i have and what can i get done the only thing he wants to do is get through to his kid but at no point was he like i want to prolong my life for myself mm. or even to save my life no i think his fate was clear the moment of liz diagnosis go to the hospital or you'll be dead by this weekend and sure enough like clockwork from monday to saturday we see his decline and then his ultimate demise but then how does the plate break and why was the window open 
I don't know. I mean, and the how how was the sunroof you know constructed that he obviously went through to his uh, to his everlasting light at the end? Well, I don't know that his corporal body needs to pass through the <laughs> through the roof. It literally <laughs> left. He left the floor. Well, yeah, in a metaphorical sense. Yeah, so maybe the plate was broke literally metaphorically. <laughs> so no grease fire then? And he definitely <laughs> went up and not down. You remember her, her horrible post that there's going to be a grease fi- oh. fire in hell when he burns? I mean, that was very clever and very funny. Really mean. <laughs> so mean. <laughs> but it's like Instagram level mean, man. The world is full of trolls. Ah. Uh. This is just where we are. But the world is full of people who can't not care. I don't know. Bitter people get their outlet or whatever. I was really waiting for this movie to go all Aronofsky and for it to get much darker than it did. I don't see this movie as the it's obviously a tragedy, but I didn't feel the despair that I felt in Requiem for a Dream. Like it didn't made me make me actively feel bad. It looked kind of gross. Like I said, that tinge was kind of sickly for me. But this is pretty restrained for Darren Aronofsky, I think. The symbolism of the bird, of the broken plate, of him ultimately leaving his physical plane, being literally relieved of the burden of his earthly body and the weight of it, you know, Mm. where his feet leave the floor. Mm -hmm. But it didn't get crazy. And I was expecting it to get crazy. And I was expecting Charlie to descend into madness and for it to get music video-y and and have all kinds of flashes and hallucinations and things. Mm. Like he was going to witness his death. And it wasn't. It was just Charlie's sweet face and his sweet smile. And he's so cute when he smiles and his earnestness. And The Charlie character was just so eternally hopeful that I think he kept everyone kind of aloft. But you kind of also have to fault him. It's like everyone seems to be bearing the weight of his self-destructive behavior. Like Samantha Morton's character. Mary can't handle it. Ellie's obviously acting huh. out. Liz is hanging on by a thread. And it's not just because they're exasperated. It's because they need to build to their monologue. Everybody got their stage play monologue in this movie. Including Samantha Morton? Yeah. Jesus, Charlie. And then she gets her monologue where she's all mad. And, and even though they're divorced and have been divorced, she's carrying the, you know, the pain and resentment from him leaving her for his boyfriend and stuff. And Sadie Sink has the thing where... She actually breaks down and the exterior cracks and she's like, you could have been my dad. Like, you never even asked about me and, you know, in that narrow-minded kid way. Well, and also Mary apparently was keeping him at bay. Yeah, kid's a punk because Mary's a punk. (laughs) Right. And Mary had her own insecurities about parenthood that she was hiding from herself. Samantha Morton, though, a par-for-the-course powerful performance. She's great. Sadie Sink, a little one note, but... It was a strong note. To that one note? Yeah, exactly. It was a teenager note. Um, I mean, just ruthless, unrelenting, and just so mean. The whale had like banshees of Inishirin level complexity where it's like, I hate you. Do you want some water? You're disgusting. Right. Here's a sandwich. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did, did anybody else eat in this movie? Hmm. Like she wasn't like, I got a tuna on rye for me. Here's your sub. Not like I got a salad. Here's your pizza. No, there's smoking and drinking. There's self-destructive behavior all around. Yeah. You know why the whale seems like a curious character? I'm finding with these health challenges from mom and dad, 
that it's not uncommon. Uh, they're, they're both having trouble. And then you go to a place like a medical uh, supply company and there's lots of these people, lots of them, who need the same stuff and care when you're unwell. Just these people, they stay away. You don't see them. They're not getting Chinese food. They're having it delivered and you never see them. Before Instacart was a thing and I was delivering groceries, there were only a few people who delivered groceries. Those were the rich, those were the curious that had coupons and wanted to try it out, and then there were the people who were shut in. Mm. And uh, I saw, I, I carried groceries into a lot of these people's homes. And unfortunately, what you didn't see is that it, it really, really smells bad in people's homes, especially if they have pets, if they have really limited mobility. And so the people like Charlie... It's definitely real life. It felt real in a way that Aronofsky didn't try to make it some like the fountain level creature or something crazy like a like a, a snarling refrigerator. No, all pretty grounded. The scariest stuff was like the Three Musketeers drawer or like. That's a real drawer, man. Dad has that drawer. Or that he might drop his phone or his spare bedroom key. Oh, man. What was with the bedroom? Do you figure? Was that his and his boyfriend's bedroom? That he had left untouched? I'm assuming it was it was in some form Alan's bedroom. But what was curious to me was how, you know, when you're trying to reassure someone, i.e. Charlie trying to reassure Thomas that you're not attracted to them and that you don't want to make, <laughs> that you don't want to come on to them, the next thing that you don't ask them is to retrieve the spare bedroom key and then open the spare bedroom for you. I mean, I guess you're just supposed to really take him at face value. But then I was like, ooh, why are they going into the spare bedroom? Uh, anyway, everybody great. Uh, unexpected for Sadie. She swears where, way more in this one than she does in Stranger Things. Samantha Morton has been a quiet staple of power for decades. Don't know who that Thomas kid is. Don't care. Uh, the, the lady who played Liz, what's her name? Hong Chow. Yeah, I thought she was great and fierce and tender and, in a way, Charlie's best friend for however that came to pass. Like, when she would, like, lay her head on his shoulder, like, she's like, I'm really annoyed with you, but I'm going to cuddle with you. Like, it was very cute and very real. Everyone great, man, but got to get down to it. Brendan Fraser carries this movie. He, he wears this movie and carries it around with him like a fat suit. Like This movie is heavy like a fat suit. His performance, like they're saying, maybe he'll be nominated for an Oscar and stuff. But his opportunity to take this in a completely different direction is so admirable and stood out so much to me. Like he's it's like a blistering performance of self-loathing and guilt, like I said. But it wasn't like him being all acty or forgive the pun chewy in this performance. No. He, it was like a Heath Ledger, Brokeback Mountain level, repressed kind of self-loathing. Wow. People have the thing where they have nostalgia for certain people. Brendan Fraser is among them now, who's enjoying his renaissance. But the Mummy movies got tired really quickly for me. I remember him since School Ties. But then afterwards, like George of the Jungle, I didn't see. Journey to the Center of the Earth, I didn't really see. There were a few one-offs like Gods and Monsters that I thought were great. But I didn't really perceive Brendan Fraser as the actor who was in good-looking, like, buff guy, deep-voice kind of roles. I was intensely skeptical of his ability and, like, really? He's getting all the accolades for the whale? How's it going to be? He blew me away. 
blew you out of the water? Like Chadwick Boseman, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom level performance. Um, the because the the movie itself wasn't dissimilar from the wrestler the darren aronofsky movie did you see that yeah it's shocking similarities trying to connect with his daughter all the way down to the end and the self-abuse and just his being kind of on the fringe of society and trying to be like a person down on his luck very very close the physical degradation right completely carried by um mickey rourke who also got his accolades and enjoyed something of a comeback after this. Same thing for Brendan Fraser. Such a soulful face, and so much so that you were worrying about Brendan Fraser's actually actual health. Genuinely it concerned. It didn't feel like a performance to no. me. It felt like that was him, and you were worried, and, and he was in a constant state of emotional tension. Mm. Uh, you can see how that dude would be on the verge of heart failure, because he wasn't relaxed, basically, ever. No. Like a revenant level journey of uh, self-destruction. Like Leonardo DiCaprio went through all this stuff, but under all that prosthetics, it was probably a similar experience yeah. for Brendan Fraser. Prosthetics, which apparently had its own climate control and ventilation system. Yeah, he didn't go anywhere. He had cooling tubes in his clothes, <laughs> though, to keep him managed. I'm giving it a uh, an all right for the movie itself. Brendan Fraser gets an absolute totally from me for his astounding performance. And not because he was flashy, but because of the limitations his character has and how he was able to work, you know, front, kind of like kind of behind those layers of fat or prosthetics. It was awesome. Definitely shines through. And if he's hampered in any way, it's all character appropriate. But the, the struggle is internal and it's, it finds its way to, to the surface throughout the film. And it just it, it just breaks my heart. This is our discussion on The Whale from 2022, available in theaters, 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com or whatevermovies.com or wherever you get podcasts. I think this officially kicks off award season here at Or Whatever Movies. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.